Lord, thank you for treasuring the people you have made. Thank you that it makes you angry when we tease each other because you treasure your masterpieces. And we pray that you would give us hearts that live in the joy of the fact that you treasure us. And we pray that you would give us hearts that aren't willing to insult other people because that would be insulting you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we have friends on the playground who are willing um, to see your kiddos age zero to seven. So parents, feel free to walk them out and around. We'll need you to take them all the way around to the playground so we don't lose anybody in the parking lot. And um, you may pick them up in time for communion or just after the service. Our preacher this morning is a dear friend who needs no introduction. Uh, Fumi is the uh, architect of this whole Lenten series, and um, he delivered our first sermon, and he's back this week to deliver chapter three. Welcome, Fumi. Thank you. Can you all hear me now? I think, yeah, maybe, yeah, it's the same, okay. <laughs> it's all right. Um, it is good to be in the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to incarnation and worship with the saints therein. If you would, please open your Bibles to Lamentations chapter three. You've already heard it, read into your hearing. We're going to be specifically in verses 21 through 33. I wish I could do the entire chapter, but it's 66 verses. And Pastor John told me, you know, I'm, I already go too long already, so I need to, to abbreviate. Um, so we continue this morning. I'll walk through the book of Lamentations. For those of you who have not been with us, I think Dr. Hall gave us a great summary. Um, and I hope you all were listening, but essentially in the first week or so, we talked about what lament is and we defined it as prayer and pain on the path to praise. And we learned that lament deals with more than just the thing that happened, but also with what lies underneath and which, as we saw in the first chapter of Lamentations is sin, right? And then last week, Pastor John taught us how to lament as he took us through the three movements of chapter two. We see how Jeremiah there turned to God and brought his complaint to him, how he cried and cried out. And through that, Pastor John encouraged us that we should likewise pour out our grief to God and list it up before him and ultimately turn to him in prayer. And in this, in this, we see four elements of how to lament, how to lament. And the first is we turn to God. The second is we bring our complaint to God. The third is we hope in God. And finally, the fourth is we trust in God. So after having turned to God and bringing our complaint to God and crying out to God and lament the past couple of weeks, I want us this morning to examine how we can, in the midst of pain and suffering, 
in the midst of unremitting sorrow that can so easily give way to despair and denial, how lament actually invites us to dare to hope. And that's the topic of my sermon this morning, dare to hope. So chapter three is the summit of the book of Lamentations. It is the theological high point and the basis for Christian hope. In verses 21 to, to 33, we have a very clear message uh, that is being delivered about who God is. And simply because God is God, there is hope, even in seemingly hopeless situations. Let me repeat that. Because God is God, there is always hope. And in this, this apex of the book of Lamentation, it actually reframes the central question of lament from how or why, God, to who? In other words, the text is tailored to teach us certain truths about who God is. And it also dispels the lies the enemy tells us about our painful circumstances. Verse 21 is the game changer in this lament. The, the weeping prophet through tears, through bitterness and heartache, he says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. No, no, notice a few things in this verse. The word but, right? That, that, that indicates a turning of some kind. And we've talked about the word but in, in here before, right? Remember, conjunction, junction. Yes. What's your function? Thank you, thank you. And here again, you see the conjunction serves as a contrast to what has gone before. And everything pivots on this verse. Also notice the, the phrase called to mind. It, it uses the Hebrew words for to return or to remember. And it actually advocates for a rehearsing of what one believes. I love how the New Living Translation picks this up with an interesting <laughs> translation, as it often does. It says, yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. Your circumstances, they, they have a narrative to them, but there is another narrative. There, your suffering and pain has a story to it. But let me tell you this morning, it is not the entire story. The calling to mind creates hope. Now, this is only the second time in, in, in the book that we find that word hope, and it's actually the first time that it's used in a positive sense. And th th there is nothing, nothing in the circumstances themselves that would create optimism. Because remember, Jeremiah is still sitting in the ruins of Jerusalem. Yet he calls to mind something that becomes the basis for hope to return. And in this, we see Lamentations leading us towards a very important and practical step for when life becomes difficult and challenging. It is showing us that hope doesn't come from our circumstances. Rather, hope comes from what you know to be true, despite your circumstances. In other words, you live through suffering by what you believe, not by what you see. We call to mind what we believe about God. In other words, we lament 
by faith and not by sight. If today you are suffering because of your sin, because of the sin in the world, or because of someone else's sin against you, I bring good news of great hope. That even in the midst of the relentless battering of difficulty after difficulty, calamity after calamity, you can still fight for hope by anchoring your life on what you know about God and what is true about your suffering. So I got three truths in a lie for you this morning. <laughs> three truths about who God is and one lie about your circumstance. The first truth, God is good all the time. Thank you, baby. God is good all the time. Verse 22 to 23. In verse 22, Jeremiah declares three aspects of the unchanging goodness of God. First, it declares God's steadfast love. My, 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 this steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Steadfast love here translates that enigmatic Hebrew word hesed, right? I look at Dr. Hall because she's the expert. It's, and, and this word hesed is a comprehensive term for the incomparable love of God. It, it, and if you look at the, the various translations, uh, you'll see the term rendered in different ways. Sometimes it's steadfast love, other times it's loving kindness, other times it's unfailing love. But the translators are all trying to get their arm around this big word. It simply refers to the loyal love of God. And, and, and it is a reference to the covenant-keeping love of God. Now, this love, this love is everlasting. It allows everything because God is love. And just like God himself, it never ends. So the steadfast love, Jeremiah says, it never ceases. What, what, a, what a word of comfort that is, right? People who love us today can change their mind about us tomorrow. I think it was the great theologian and prophetess, um, Lauren Hill, that said it best. <laughs> One day, they hail you, but the next day, they nail you. See, there are times when others would forsake us, but not our God. His love is everlasting love. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Now, there's another way to read this text, all right? That is because the steadfast love of the Lord, we have not ceased to be. That, that's the way I, I learned it as a boy from the King James versions, right? Because of the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. And now that is often a, a neglected but mutually comforting truth. Sometimes, sometimes, I know about you, but sometimes I feel as if God doesn't care because of what I'm going through. But what I fail to recognize is the fact that I'm still alive to go through that thing. And it is itself an evidence of the ongoing care of God. There are circumstances that we face 
that could have consumed us, that should have consumed us, but the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. In Malachi 3, 6, the Lord declares, I am the Lord your God. I do not change. Therefore, the sons of Jacob have not been consumed. See, the only reason you have not been utterly wiped out is because God hasn't changed his mind about you. Even when, even when you changed his mind about him. The text here also shows us a picture of God's goodness in terms of his compassionate mercies. That, that is the second part of verse 22. His mercies never come to an end. In the, in the A clause, we have a picture of the volitional love of God. His steadfast love never ceases. But in the B clause, we have a picture of the compassionate love of God. His mercies never come to end. Mercy. We're only here because God, in his sparing mercy, has held so much, has held it back, so much of what we actually deserve. Friends, run to this verse the next time you're tempted to complain. When you feel like you haven't gotten what you deserve, go to Lamentations 3.22. Be reminded to thank God that he has not given you what you actually deserve. You could be worse. You should be worse. But his mercies prevented things from happening that should have happened. Friends, we're only here because it's never, his mercies never come to an end. And then, then Jeremiah declares these mercies are new every morning. My, 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 what a phrase that is. In the infinite reality of God's nature, his mercy towards us is novel and constant at the same time. You will never have to live on yesterday's mercies. Every day we wake up, there's fresh mercy for whatever that day may bring. Every time I step out of my bed and I look down, look, there it is, fresh mercies. Now, how many things in your life can you count on every morning? You can go to bed at night, and by the time you wake up in the morning, things you care so much about can be gone. Right? Things that we clutch on to so desperately can be snatched away from us by life. Health, family, possessions, your career. But whatever changes life may throw at you, we have this assurance that if the Lord wakes us up in the morning, there's a new mercy for that day brings. Oh, I thank you, Jesus, that every day I wake up, God provides strength needed for that day. There is fresh mercy, whatever the day may bring. Every day I wake up, God finds new ways to express his extravagant beneficence towards me. They are new every morning. And so there is hope, no matter the circumstance, because God is good all the time. And all the time? Amen. And then we get to the second truth about God. God is great in his faithfulness. Verse 22 through 23 again. Jeremiah sings about the hope giving, hope sustaining love of God. Then in the beat part of verse 23, Jeremiah shifts from talking about the Lord to talking directly to God. Great is your faithfulness. 
as Jeremiah meditated on the attributes of God, it could not just, he, he couldn't help proclaim them to others. He, he couldn't just stop there. He had to praise God for himself. I, 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 don't, I don't really have time for this, but you ever been in church sometimes and you don't even care who's watching and you just so caught up in God's faithfulness and you got to say, excuse me, please. I got to praise God for myself. You don't know the fires he's walked with me in. You don't know the waters he's brought me through. You don't know how he picked me up from the merry clay and brought me up to the heights. You don't know what my God has done for me. I got to praise him for myself. Excuse me, y'all can sit there all sedity, but I know what the Lord has done for me. Move out the way while I praise my God. You know what? I don't even need the drums. I got a beat in my heart. I got a dance on my feet. I got a song on my lips. I'm going to praise God all by myself. I got to praise him. That's what Jeremiah says. Speaking directly to God, he said, great is your faithfulness. There are two facts here about the faithfulness of God. First, he says that the Lord is always faithful. Faithfulness here means trustfulness and trustworthiness. It simply means that God will keep his word. He is a promise keeper. God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should repent of any wrongdoing. If he said it, he will do it. I'm a Baptist and we often say like, if the Lord said it, that means it's done. I believe it. It is, I, I forget the phrase. But the, the idea is, I guess I'm not as good a Baptist as I thought. Y'all incarnation are rubbing off on me now. If, the idea is that if God spoke it, he's gonna bring it to pass. The Lord is faithful. He's faithful in affliction. Psalm 119.75, for I know that your rules, O Lord, are righteous, and that in your faithfulness you have afflicted me. He's faithful in sanctification. First Thessalonians 5.24, the one who has called you is faithful. He will surely do it. He is faithful in forgiveness. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful in all your circumstance. Second Timothy 2, 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Oh, great is thy faithfulness. O oh God, our Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions that fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Now, it's easy to sing that song when all is well. It's easy to sing, great is your faithfulness at a wedding or graduation or an anniversary or promotion, when life is going well. You know, most people sing that song with gratitude for what God has done to give thanks for his care and provision. But in Lamentations 3, great is your faithfulness. His song as Jeremiah looks at a smoldering, destroyed and overrun city. The test of the meaning of that song 
is when you can actually sing, great is your faithfulness with a broken heart, with tears in your eyes, with a bad report from the doctor, a financial reversal you did not plan for, with family tensions you can't seem to reconcile, when you can look up and declare, Lord, I don't know how I'm gonna get through this, but I know your faithfulness is unending, great is your faithfulness. And the Lord is always faithful. But this line is also not, says not only is the Lord always faithful, the Lord is more than faithful. Now you can only say this about God. (laughs) Faithfulness is not relative, y'all. It's not uh, subjective or contingent. It it is absolute. You can't be kind of faithful. Either you are or you aren't. And and, and there's there's a word for a husband who's only 90% faithful. Uh, Thank you, Pastor John. (laughs) Unfaithful. You see, faithfulness is not qualitative or quantitative. It's an absolute reality. Either you're faithful or you're not. But speaking of the faithfulness of God, Jeremiah says it's not enough to say he's just faithful. You've got to say it in the superlative. You've got to say it emphatically. You've got to declare the wonders of his faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Oh, thank you, God, because you have been faithful through it all. Even through the deep waters and the fires that burn, even through the depths of despair, even when I don't know what tomorrow will bring, God, great is your faithfulness. God is good all the time. God is great in his faithfulness. The third truth we have about God is, God is sufficient as your portion. Verse 24, look at the text again with me. Jeremiah shifts from talking directly to God to talking to himself about God. He says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Now, now there are many occasions in scripture where we see a man, you know, speak to his soul. This is one of the rare occasions where a man's soul speaks to him. (laughs) It's as if Jeremiah's own soul couldn't trust him to see God in his circumstances. And so his soul, if you will, just grabbed him by the collar, shakes him out of his despair, gave him a slap or two, and says, remember, the Lord is your portion, Jeremiah. Hope in him. Now the word portion here refers to a great inheritance, a, a personal endowment. It is a gifted possession. It's real estate language. And and it's used, for instance, in Numbers 18 and 20 to describe when the children of God get into the promised land and all the tribes are supposed to get an allotment of land except the tribe of Levi. In Joshua 13.33, looking back, the explanation for why the tribe of Levi doesn't get an allotment of land is that the Lord is their portion. Ma, ma, ma. As the Lord is passing out land in the promised land, the Levites are skipped from the list. And God's explanation is wonderful. I 
and their portion. They won't get land, but they got me. And I'm all that they need. Friends, God is really all that you need. You may not have a perfect health, but you got God. You may not have a job, but you got God. C.S. Lewis said it best. The one who has God and other things has no more than one who has God alone. I remember not just five years ago, we lost our jobs. Family income went from six figures to zero, almost overnight. We looked to God, what are we gonna do? I got this mortgage, I got my, I got utilities to pay, I got these two kids, man, they gotta be fed. What are we gonna do? But then I remember, the psalmist says, I was young, now I'm old. Never have I seen the righteous forsaken, nor his children begging bread. God was faithful, and he was our portion. And before we know it, nothing stopped. We paid our mortgage, we paid our utilities, we, we ate good, we had steak sometimes. You know, because God, it was our portion. God was our portion. In Psalm 73, 25, 26, who do I have in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire but you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. Now, if Jeremiah can sing this song sitting in the ruins of Jerusalem, lamenting the condition of the people of God. How much more should we sing this song? Is those who have trusted in the bloody cross and the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have been gripped by God's sovereign grace, this transforming grace, this rescuing grace. How much more should this be our song? The Lord Jesus Christ is every believer's portion Remember when Jesus and the disciples went to dinner at Mary and Martha's in Bethany? Martha got overwhelmed at cooking the meal and Mary skips out of the chores in the kitchen. That sounds familiar to some of y'all. And then Martha, Martha sees this and chastises Jesus. Hey, JC, don't you see something wrong in here? Like, make my sister help me out. This ain't right. But Luke 10, 41 to 42 says, Jesus responds, Martha, Martha, Martha. You are troubled and anxious about many things, but only one thing is needful, sister. And your sister has chosen the good portion that will never be taken from her. This is our hope in the Lord Jesus. He is the good portion that will never, never, ever be taken away. He is our sure portion. He is our satisfying portion. He is our all-sufficient portion. There it is, three truths about God. He is good all the time. He is great in his faithfulness. He is sufficient as our portion. But there's a lie I wanna talk about. A lie that the enemy often whispers in our ears in the midst of suffering. And that is, your suffering is meaningless. Part of the grief of suffering and judgment is the fear that it will never end or, or that it has no real purpose. But the Bible is explicit here that your suffering will not have the last word. Look at verse 31 through 
32. It is filled with great hope and encouragement for the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he caused grief, he will have compassion. According to what? The abundance of his steadfast love. My, my, my. This verse is telling us that all suffering has a purpose and it is not without limits. It, it reminds us that God has a plan for us and for his people, and it's full of compassion and steadfast love. Verse 33 makes it even clearer. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. This text tells us that all of the destruction and devastation, the leveling of Jerusalem and the temple does not come from a heart that enjoys the hardship that's brought upon his people. God is not in heaven taking delight in the discipline and the suffering of his people. Rather, he is doing it because of his loving purposes. God can't allow Israel to continue in rebellion. He's got to stop them. And in order to stop them, he had to destroy them, at least for now. But, but the ultimate aim of God flows from a gracious and loving heart. He wants what is best for his children. And that's why Jerusalem was leveled. You see, God intends to save his people. But before that happens, he needs for their hearts to be ready to listen to him. You see, pain has a way of peeling back the calluses of a hardened heart. Your suffering is not meaningless, friends. There is purpose in your pain. If you're a follower of Jesus, everything in your life somehow and in some way is part of God's purposes for you. God doesn't enjoy your struggle or your tears, but he is producing something good in you. And it all comes from the heart of God who loves you. And you may not understand the purpose right now, but I assure you, God is at work. Here's the thing. Joseph didn't understand the purpose of his sufferings until he made sense. And he declared what you meant for evil, God used for good. To the disciples, the suffering of Jesus on the cross seemed meaningless. This was the apparent demise of all their hopes and dreams for a political messiah until we saw that Jesus' cross, the emblem of suffering and shame, is the very power of God unto salvation. Your sufferings, your pain may very well seem meaningless today, but I promise you, friend, I promise you, sister, I promise you, my brother, that one day it will make sense, if not in this life, certainly in the next. This, at least we know, that our suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And this hope does not put to shame. Oh, why? Because our hope is firmly grounded in, it's firmly grounded on Jesus Christ. If our hope was in politicians, surely this past year and the years to come will put us all to shame. If our hope was in movement or marches, the pages of history are littered with how they have ultimately fallen short. 
if our hope wasn't abolishing institutions or overthrowing oppressors, surely another will take its place. Oh, these are but quicksand upon which any hope would sink. Oh, but my hope, my hope, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness seems to hide its face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. And when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Hallelujah. Friends, this is our hope. The immovable, unshakable, unchangeable rock of ages, who is good all the time, who is great in his faithfulness, and who is all sufficient as our portion. These truths we will call to mind, and therefore we dare to hope. Hallelujah.